0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is author, LitFest co-director, and bookseller at a tiny roving bookstore, Theodore Wheeler. Theodore Wheeler is the author of the novels, Kings of Broken Things, and In Our Other Lives, and a collection of short fiction titled Bad Faith. His work has appeared in publications, including New Stories from the Midwest, The Southern Review, The Kenyan Review, Narrative, and Boulevard, and he has been recognized with a Marion Russo Award from the Key West Literary Seminar and a fellowship from Academy Schloss Solitude in Stuttgart, Germany. A graduate of the Creative Writing Program at Creighton University, Wheeler teaches creative writing at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, covers a civil law beat for a national news service, Coderex X, Omaha Lit Fest, and sidelines as a bookseller for the Dundee book company, Roving Book Cart, one of the world's smallest bookstores. Theodore, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So let's start then with uh, the, uh, one of the world's smallest bookstores, the Dundee Book Company. Uh, what is it and, and why did you create this?
1: Uh, So the book cart itself is about four feet wide. We have six shelves on it. Uh, It comes apart into two pieces that kind of slide together and it's something that I designed myself so it fits in the trunk of our SUV. But more or less the idea behind it is that, you know, living in Midtown, we don't have an independent new bookstore and haven't had for a long time. Um, Jackson Street is amazing. Uh, our bookstore downtown in the Old Market is amazing. Uh, we do have the Barnes & Noble, but you know, it seemed like for that thing that most communities have, thriving communities have, an independent bookstore, uh, but we don't. So I think for years, we kind of went back and forth, my wife and I, on whether we should step up and try to open up a traditional brick and mortar store. Um, for various reasons, that just wasn't really feasible for us that we didn't want to get uh, a large business loan we didn't want to quit our day jobs so two summers ago uh my wife had the idea that you know what is the smallest thing we can do that is still a bookstore and this was the idea of it to do uh, a roving bookstore where we'd have one cart uh show up to you know between 3 to 10 events a month uh kind of different highlights in the literary calendar and and try to be that bookstore that we felt was lacking in our neighborhood. So more or less, I mean, that's what we're still doing, that kind of original conception. Trying to build community around it, I think is a big part of it. Uh, Just getting people to, to talk about books when they normally wouldn't. And the benefit of being roving is that we can just set up pretty much anywhere. So people encounter a bookstore, they encounter books in places that they wouldn't normally expect to or just you know, on their Saturday afternoon at a coffee shop or something like that. And then they end up looking at books. They end up talking about books uh, at a time that they otherwise normally wouldn't have.
0: Is this a means to an end? Uh, As in, is this just a stepping stone to something more like a larger bookselling enterprise? Or is this actually just a Trojan horse to open up uh, a doorway? You use the word community, people talking in conversation about books the craft of reading so so why did you create this thing
1: uh initially i think it was kind of a, a means to an end that we still wanted to open up a brick and mortar store in the neighborhood and maybe you know kind of dip your toe in the water a little bit with this hoping to build a following customer base and then we said we'd give it two years Uh, which is pretty much exactly two years now here in August. Uh, And we would decide whether we wanted to move into a traditional space, kind of just keep doing what we're doing or quit altogether. So I guess, you know, at this point, we've decided to more or less kind of do what we're doing still. I think it's still the same situation with brick and mortar that uh, it just didn't seem feasible for us. I don't know, with the whole retail Armageddon is not the greatest time to open up a storefront uh, in any city in America right now. But I think, too, the other part of that is that we've just gotten a really good response for what we were doing in the roving book cart and kind of building a community and audience out of that where we didn't necessarily feel like we needed to have this huge seismic change in our lives to to still uh, have a presence and to still promote books and sell good books that we love. Um, but in a way that uh, you know doesn't disrupt uh, our life and our family.
0: The world, in some ways, is dominated by market world or a commerce-first approach to mm-hmm. everything. And it seems to me that what you're doing is intensely disruptive because you're doing something small and mobile and roving that relies very much on community and is not built to scale up into some profitable model. Right. And yet, at the same time. Uh, I think more independent bookstores are actually opening. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're being successful. Actually, I say that, but I think they are being successful because I think revenues have been increasing. And it seems that e-book sales have decreased somewhat, but mm-hmm. the sales of print books have increased. So on the one hand, I'm wondering if this roving bookstore model is, a, is a, a new subversive approach, and yet it also seems as if perhaps some of these old 20th century models are still viable.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Right. Um I mean, that was part of the reason when we started joining uh, the ABA, American Booksellers Association, um, that we kn- we know people who have done this and been successful at it. When we travel, we always look for the cool bookstore and just kind of know that's the neighborhood we want to hang out in for our key to decode a new city. So we've met people that have done it and pulled it off. Uh, you know, being an author, too, I've gone on book tour before. So I've met a lot of booksellers that way. I think the flip side of that is just again like how you define success. So a lot of them are selling more books, uh there are more bookstores, there's a bigger presence. You know, ebook sales are are decreasing. I think people kind of love the tactile feel of a physical book and that the experience is uh more important than the actual uh information that's on a page. But, you know, again coming back to the idea of like what does success mean? So I think It's just kind of, you know, just getting by, surviving is often defined as success for a small bookstore. For us, you know, I think, you know, we could definitely see a life where that would be it, but it's also what you give up to do that. Like, you know, would that mean that we don't get to travel anymore, like that we'll work every Saturday all day for as long as we can keep this going? Um, so, I think those you know those kinds of decisions that any retail uh, enterprise goes through are are difficult to make. The other side for us, too was just that I think we liked so much of what the book cart did that wasn 't commerce as you mentioned that it was kind of disruptive, I guess what we call like the social performative art of of the cart uh rather than the commerce side because the commerce side can be pretty rough a lot of times where you know you we put in maybe four hours during the week getting ready for event. Uh, six hours actually set up in a space, and uh, maybe sell zero to one book. It's just incredibly frustrating to go through that. And if our focus was entirely on the commerce, then we probably would have just quit a while ago. But finding that other side of it, kind of the the art side, the community side, that's, you know, so much more rewarding. So, you know, I guess that's just kind of what we've been pursuing and and running towards what makes us happy instead of trying to, I don't know, do uh, all the hard work that you know, all, you know, all the real booksellers do <laughs> to keep their stores going and God bless them for it. Why
0: do you write?
1: I think that's, I mean, it's always a hard question. So I, I don't really remember not writing in some ways. Um, my mom always tells a story about, that I was writing stories uh, when I was three, which I don't really remember doing that. So I think it, you know, it's just kind of pleasurable again, you know, it's just kind of who I am. Uh, Is part of my day, and it always has been. I've been lucky enough to be able to build a a life around that, too, where I can actually get paid to do this now in in various ways, Uh, none of which are, I would say, like a career or a traditional job that's a breadwinner-type job. But, you know, I can do four different things, like sell books and and write books and teach to kind of build up into something that allows me to have 20 hours of free time to pursue my passion projects. I think too, like you know, especially after publishing now and having books out, just being able to reach people and have my ideas reach people, to have people connect with the the language that I'm writing and the art of that too, uh, is really gratifying and just kind of realizing that, you know, once I do have a platform and a voice, that I can use that to to bring attention to things that I feel are important.
0: Tell me a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing, and maybe especially how. Books or literature or an appreciation for art generally maybe appeared in in your childhood.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a, a working class family. Uh, for most of my life, my dad managed lumber yards in small towns. Uh, my mom stayed at home when we were young and watched us, and then she got her uh, nurse's license and was a nurse for 15 years. So I, I think, in some ways, you know, art wasn't really a big part of my childhood. I know. Like any time my mom had a day off, we would usually go to an art museum or do something. And she certainly read a lot. Um, She read to me a lot, encouraged me to write. So not to sound disingenuous that it wasn't a huge part of it, but I think for, you know, a lot of people, it wasn't like this was a clear path to me, you know, by the time I went to college as a first generation college student and became an English major, I don't think a lot of people like understood that maybe in a personal way, but like it's like, well, he's going to go to law school after this, so it's okay. But then when I didn't go to law school and I went to you know creative writing and got an m f a in that there were i think especially like my grandparents who had grown up in the depression and my grandpa, who was uh functionally illiterate, like didn't really understand like why I put so much uh faith in, in in my future in the hands of, of being a writer, um, which I can understand too, but I also think it's pretty cool to be an author who's the grandson of someone who, like, only finished fourth grade and, like, could barely write a check. Uh, two days ago, my daughter, my older daughter who's 11, asked me, like, or she sometimes refers to, like, writing as my job or my hobby alternately, and just trying to explain that it's, it's not really either of those. It's just kind of a lifestyle, and, like, Again, you know, it's like it's not necessarily a means to an end. It's it's a it's a way of being. And my mom was a big reader, so I had that good role model, which is incredibly important for children to to get into books. Um, but I also like was allowed to read mostly anything I wanted. Just I think the idea that as a parent now I have that like if you're old enough to pick up a book and understand it, you're old enough to read it. You know, there's no kind of censorship in that way. Um, so most of my childhood I spent reading comic books mostly, and I, I would read some books. Um I grew up in a pretty religious family too, so I had read the Bible quite a bit on my own. But I think, you know, just being exposed to that and it was never like you have to read this or you have to read this or like quit wasting your time with this. So it definitely encouraged me to maybe f- follow that, you know, just kind of follow my passions in different ways and, and just do what I felt was important. I think. I don't know, being in academia somewhat now, too, like just seeing that, how comic books have kind of been raised up, you know, it's like, you know, not all comic books are the same and they deal with important issues, and it's, it's gratifying to see that, because I think people do engage with the world in many different ways, and to kind of say, like, this is important and this is trash, you know, really just cuts so many people out of the conversation.
0: So I took the liberty, given the the nature of this show, and given that on Live's radio show, previous guests have included a number of different authors and people associated with the writing, craft, and industry, so I took the liberty of asking some of them to give me questions that I should ask you. Uh, So this is unusual. I don't usually (laughs) ask other people to contribute, but I thought this would be a special case. So uh, a previous guest on this show is the poet and author of the poetry collection, What It Looks Like, How It Flies, which is Steve Langham. Mm -hmm. And he had a question for you, which is what are the differences between poetry and prose and why do you work in
1: prose? I think somewhat to me, because I actually started when I was writing more seriously, I started as a poet. So I think my entrance was always just kind of language and just the love of how things sound and how you can fit words together. And I mean, just kind of basically create meaning out of sounds. So I think I still write that way. Um, I guess why I'm a fiction writer, not a poet now, somewhat like in college, I just had a professor who said, Oh, that sounds really good, that's beautiful, but I wouldn't call it poetry. Um <laughs> and I, I guess I kind of agreed with it, you know, that it was that maybe what I was doing, I wasn't really that interested in poetic forms. Um, I was less interested in the the tradition of poetry and more interested in novels, so that I should probably just start writing fiction. And even now, I think I try to write more lyrically that, you know, in all of my work, which, which I do a ton of topical-based, kind of news-based or historically-based fiction, but personally, I'm always just focused on the language and, like, how it, the story sounds, what the voice sounds, um, the rhythms of it. So in some ways, I don't think there necessarily is that much difference between... Like, different forms of writing, um, specifically, you know, lyrical fiction versus poetry. Besides scope, I guess, would be the biggest one. Like, poets have to be so concise and compress everything down so much. And uh, I'm not good at that.
0: (laughs) If you wouldn't mind reading something from one of your works, that perhaps would give the listeners an illustration of how you do work.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So um, I'll read a a passage which kind of comes towards the end of my novel, Kings of Broken Things. Uh, The book is set in Omaha during World War I era, so 1917 to 1919, and is more or less based around uh, the Omaha race riot of 1919 and the lynching of Will Brown. Uh, So the, the voice of the novel is this group of German immigrant boys who grew up in, in the River Ward of Omaha, as it was called, and kind of wondering about their childhood and realizing how remarkable the events of their childhood were, and trying to process that. So I'll just I'll just read a page or two here, uh, which is the boys looking back and thinking about who Will Brown was, uh, who was the man who was lynched at the Douglas County Courthouse, and just kind of processing that or working through this man who was so unknowable to them in some ways. The boys on Clandish wondered about these years as they grew older, the war years, the riot year, and how their city wasn't so splendid as they thought it was when they were young. The boys took jobs when they were old enough to get them, some in Jobbers Canyon warehouses, some in South Omaha stockyards. A few finished high school. Even fewer went to college became lawyers and insurance executives and city administrators. Some moved far away. Most of the boys on Clandish stayed close. They had kids of their own who went to battle in Europe in what seemed like only a short time later, sons who died on the beaches of Normandy. These boys thought of what happened to Will Brown. Will Brown, who was buried in a potter's field at Forest Lawn Cemetery They knew so little about him. There wasn't much of an effort to know more. Men like Will Brown just sort of disappeared those days. It was easy. A poor man might carry a state certificate in his billfold to prove he did in fact exist. He might only have one photograph of himself alone in that billfold because nobody else would want it. A man like Will Brown. Who was he supposed to give a photo to? Even for a man like Will Brown, who was lynched, whose name was in all three local dailies in the New York Times, the situation was only marginally different. They had his photo in the newspapers. A reporter must have found it in a drawer in his place after the cops dragged him out, unless it was his mugshot. Will Brown in his overalls, and a denim shirt and what passed for his good hat, one that had a solid brim, at least. A man with no family around, with no friends who could stand up to defend the man as a man. Nobody to eulogize him. No funeral. No words at his burial unless the gravedigger said something. Unless the gravedigger spat on his grave, which was more likely. Nobody thought speaking on Will Brown's behalf was worthwhile, the boys guessed. They didn't know. Sure, the boys thought a lot about Will Brown, but they didn't know him. To them, he was unknowable. As the boys moved around once they were older, they'd see other towns that had lynchings. Towns that had a certain prominent tree on the square. A hanging tree. A point of pride in these towns, maybe. A sign that read, 33 men hanged here. A stranger traveling through might think about what it did to a person to walk by that tree every day, to have a tree like that in your hometown, white or black or red or whatever. Just walking by that tree and knowing what was done there and what the purpose of that tree was, at least according to the people who ran that town. A tree that would outlive everybody. Will Brown came from Cairo, Illinois an island of a city at the confluence of the Ohio and the Mississippi. This was in the papers, how he'd lived there a long while. He'd probably been there when Froggy James was lynched in Cairo a decade earlier. He'd have been there when they chased Froggy to a residential neighborhood and pulled him from the shed he was hiding in and burned him alive in the alley. Maybe Will Brown walked those streets to get to work, Maybe he went to that very alley sometimes, where there were fire stains on the pavement and the eaves of houses, like there were bullet holes that marked the stone facade of the courthouse in Omaha.
0: Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees I'm going to borrow from another guest question which is from Dave Philip Mullins who's the author of the book Greetings from Below and he was particularly noticing that you write a lot of your fiction based in historical events and especially local historical events. Mm-hmm. And he was curious, as am I, about the challenges and the attractions of writing fiction that is based not only in historical event, but historical event from your community.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess about 10 years ago I had gone to the Key West Literary Seminar and heard the novelist Marilyn Robinson speak about her novel Gilead, which is set uh, in eastern Iowa and deals with Uh, a minister who had uh, kind of helped uh, runaway slaves and kind of that history and then, you know, later in his life. Uh, But her her point, because she was not from Iowa, she had went there to work at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and that she sort of did historical research to understand where she was living at. And then she ended up writing about it because it was interesting and it was just kind of her way of placing herself in the world and specifically that new community that she didn't really know anything about. So I think I kind of followed that idea where I, I grew up in Omaha or excuse me, in Nebraska, but I've only lived in Omaha for like the last 15 years. And I think growing up in Lincoln, like we always looked westward with our history. everything was about pioneers and you know that kind of tradition of founding the state, those kinds of specific immigrants, and that Omaha was always treated as something different and usually something that we didn't talk about like that you weren't supposed to talk about that it was its own thing um, so when I moved here, I think you know just kind of going through that, I've always been really interested in history, so learning about it finding out that Omaha kind of had a mob boss for 30 years that controlled everything, Tom Dennison, and then learning about the riot, um, walking by the courthouse uh, and just seeing the netting around it, which I had looked up online and it said that it was uh, to keep people from smashing out the windows, and which happened in 1919 when the courthouse was almost burned to the ground. Uh, the real answer is to keep pigeons off the side of the building. But I think, you know, the that romance of it kind of got me into it. You know, after I knew these things and that there hadn't really been a lot written about it, they weren't things that people I knew who'd grown up in Omaha even really knew about most of the time. I felt really, really compelled that, you know, somebody should write about it and that, you know, I had that knowledge. So maybe that somebody should be me. Um, it's something I struggle with a lot because there is it's not necessarily history that I feel like I own. Like when I start with it. Um But I think especially working on Kings of Broken Things, which took me about eight years uh, from start to finish, that just realizing like how much everyone in the community, in the state is complicit, in the country is complicit in the things that happened uh, with the lynching of Will Brown, with the riot and how the community is structured then and in the hundred years since. And I think just being more comfortable trying to own that history and trying to figure out like why a middle-class white guy from Lincoln should care about these things and why I should try to get other people from that background to also care.
0: You mentioned at the beginning using writing as a way to express ideas. Mm-hmm. I hear you describing this recognition that this is a story that needs to be told and acknowledged in some way, but also this reluctance because you don't own this story. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you reconcile yourself with that particular challenge. And have you ever been perhaps criticized for writing about something where perhaps, as you point out, it may not look obvious that you are a good candidate Mm -hmm. uh, at first blush to talk about this?
1: I think it is something I I still struggle with quite a bit, even with the book being out two years and doing events. And, you know, just kind of how I place myself within that history was a big part of it where the book is mostly written from the point of view of these German immigrants, uh, which is a tradition my family's from, even though we weren't in Omaha at the time. So I think somewhat that made it more comfortable that like I had a right to tell their story. And as I get closer to it, because I wrote the, the riot scenes last, wrote it, uh, kind of saved that, because um, I knew it would be so difficult and I didn't really know how I was gonna do it. So positioning the characters kind of around that, and it took a long time to, to put my main characters who were kind of precious and I'd spent 250 pages getting people to like, and then they're going to be involved in this aberrant act. And I think, you know, the problem was getting to that point where I'd actually let them be in the room or being in the same place when it happened. And More or less as a way of acknowledging that complicity, as I said before, that, you know, even if they weren't the ringleaders, if they weren't leading the charge or pulling the trigger, like that they were still involved and still there. And in ways that they didn't really realize, too, like I think most people think of themselves as more or less kind of innocent going through their lives. And if something bad happens, that it's just sort of an accident and they can be forgiven for it. Which I think you know, the second part of that is definitely true—that they can be forgiven, but acknowledgement is a necessary part of forgiveness and and moving on as well. So, in a personal way, you know, I think I hope that's what the book says and that's what people take out of it. But I think you know, I also had to go through that process personally uh, to be able to write it, uh, which was uh, you know not an easy thing to do. But that's why, like, I've done I don't know fifty some events with this book locally and talked to many groups and. Most of them are more kind of middle class white book club type groups is typically my audience, but I think, you know, just trying to own that too. And like, it's like, how does this affect your life? Like, how does this history affect, like how things turned out for you? Like, how does it affect how you deal with people? And being in a position to ask those questions feels like a, you know, a valuable thing that can come out of all these things that I've written.
0: Is there some sense that your work is in some way a, a mirror to a deeper set of values that you yourself hold? Or is this really just a creative work that you want to use to tell a story about a historical event?
1: I think I, when I start writing it, it's more kind of the latter one where it's just I'm just trying to talk about something. And like maybe the values, the morality of it, like kind of the ethics of the piece comes out of the process of writing it so I don't normally know what I'm doing until, like in some cases, until after it's published and just talking to people about it then and like, well, what have I done? And like, and then we find out. Um, but I, I think it is like most of my writing is kind of, you know, where I'm speculating on things like in this you know, book, I use uh, some tropes over and over. There's like, well, consider this person, consider this person, consider this person or just using the word maybe a lot, like allowing things that to come into the story that we don't know from the history, um, which is, you know, a valuable part of writing fiction as opposed to nonfiction that I can do that. Um, But I think part of that process is just me as an author trying to figure these things out myself and like, well, what if this had happened or what if things were this way? You know, and beyond this novel too, and in my short fiction, like I think I'm always doing that where maybe it's some event, something overheard even just eavesdropping a conversation or something from my life. And it's like, well, what if, What would it have been like if this had happened instead, or if this person had said something? And just trying to follow that and see how the world can be different than it actually turned out.
0: I'm I wonder, wonder who, who, who wrote a who book, book of love. love. Of love. I love you, darling, baby, you know I do. But I've got to see this book of love, find out why it's true. So tell me then about the craft and the actual process of making and writing this book. For a start, you've mentioned it took eight years. Mm hmm it seems I would imagine to many people that to spend eight years doing anything, um, eight minutes, I think in this world seems absurdly wrong. So, um, talk about that a little bit.
1: Um, I mean, one, like time can just really get behind you fast. So like, I didn't of course set out to spend a decade working on a single book, but maybe just personality wise, like I just tend to be more obsessive about things and very much like to see things to the finish. You know, once I got into the book and knew what I was doing, it was just kind of focused on the little things. Like, I grew up playing sports quite a bit, and it's just a big cliche in sports. But, you know, you one game at a time, like one at bat at a time, one play at a time. And I transfer a lot of that to how I write, where I don't think about, like, I'm writing this novel about this. Like, I think about what I need to do that day, even if it's just describing a room or, you know, describing how a character walks or their voice or even or something bigger you know working on like a set piece like the riot scene you know or something like that uh, which takes a long time and has a lot of moving parts but it's just kind of breaking it down to the individual movements of a piece um, so in that way you know one it's a lot less overwhelming to be working on a novel which seems preposterous to like actually be able to write something that is so big like so long okay written around 2,500 pages that went in to get a 325 book. And, you know, if I'd known how much work it would be when I started, I probably wouldn't have tried it because it's just so daunting. But by focusing, you know, just every day, just do this one thing today. um, One, it makes it possible, but it also allows eight years to pass pretty quickly where not realizing uh, that I've spent so much time doing it.
0: And what about the fact checking process? So you could fill in some of the gaps where the history wasn't complete through the fiction. But what about those other elements that, that you had to get accurately rendered, the, the, the facts of the known events that happened, and then all the research and everything else that was required?
1: Yeah, so I did do quite a bit of research. Um, I think when I started, I'd read 20 different books on Omaha history, on a German, the German-American experience in America, and just all these things, more or less to, to learn about them and to steal like little details here and there. Uh, I always found like photo books were so, uh, so valuable in that, too. Just seeing like, well, what is a, a music variety and dance club look like? Uh, something that really hasn't existed in this country, um, I don't know, in 60 years. Uh, so finding stuff like that, like how did people dress and stuff like that? was a lot of it. Um, most of my valuable research, I think, just came from reading newspapers on microfilm, uh, both the Omaha Public Library and uh, Creighton's Library as well. And I'd heard years ago heard Ron Hansen talk about writing The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And When he was writing that, he was at the University of Michigan, which has an immense library and an immense microphone collection of newspapers, uh, which happened to include the St. Joseph newspaper at the time Jesse James was alive. So he would start his day every morning, go to the library and just read that day's newspaper from front to back from St. Joseph. So he just was in Jesse James's world. So again, you know, kind of stealing that idea Um, trying to replicate that, where I didn't do it every day, but usually at least, I don't know, a dozen days a year or a week here and there, I would read that month's World Herald from that time or the Omaha Daily Bee just to get a sense of, I guess, how people lived, you know, these other events that didn't necessarily make it into the history books, but ended up being important to the story I was telling, Uh, but also to get the facts. And I think, I don't know, I always tried for the things that really happened, the people that really existed. I try to make them as close to, uh, you know, accurate as possible and just how things really were. But I was also always looking for things that kind of fell through the cracks and I wanted it to be more experiential than factual. So most of my facts I had pulled from the newspapers of the day and then would fact check them later to see if the narrative changed. But, but I was always kind of resistant of that too, that, you know, I liked the, the how it was reported on the time, usually better, just to... So you could just feel what it was like to be then, even if it wasn't necessarily, you know, the wading to the murky waters of history in the same way a historian would do it.
0: Omaha Lit Fest. Tell us about Omaha Lit Fest and, and what you're doing.
1: So, uh, Omaha Lit Fest, uh, in its previous iteration, ran from 2005 to 2015. Timothy Schaffert had uh, started this. Uh, more or less, it was a weekend that had a party Friday night, a party Saturday night, with a day of panels of authors talking about their work in between. So, I think we we're just trying to replicate that. Where, again, it, you know, it hasn't happened in four years. Uh, During that period, I've been bugging Timothy uh, at least yearly, like, when are you going to do this again? Like, when are you going to do this again? And similar to the book card, at a certain point, it was just like, well, he's not going to do it again. Should we just do it? Like, should I just do this thing? So my wife and I took this on, too, that we were going to put it on for 2019, uh, which will happen September 13th and 14th more or less the same format where we'll have an opening night party on September 13th at Wilson and Washburn. We'll have an after party uh, Saturday, September 14th at Page Turner's Lounge. And then all day Saturday at uh, the venue at Highlander, we'll have uh, artists or writers come in to talk about culture, different ideas that's in their work, but also ideas that's maybe outside of their work, these kind of issues that we're grappling with as a society I think just having the idea of getting smart people on stage and hopefully a you know a really meaningful conversation comes out of it but we'll have um it's like five local uh, writers from Omaha and Lincoln and then we're bringing in five national authors who have won big awards who will just come in for the day to to talk with our local writers too which I feel is you know a really valuable thing for our arts community and for the writers community too to hopefully you know one bringing in these people but also you know, hopefully having a good experience for them. So, you know, when they go back out into the rest of the country and the rest of the world, you know, they can talk about what's going on in Omaha.
0: So you mentioned Timothy Schaffer. Mm-hmm. He's also been a guest of Live's Radio Show, and and Timothy, most recently, uh, he's the author of several books, and the most recent was uh, The Swan Gondola. And he too asked me to ask you a question. Oh, okay. And his question was how did you go about putting together the list of featured authors?
1: Well, one, we started off by asking Timothy for advice on how to go about that, which he didn't which really... Which he roundly rejected. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so he, I don't, he's always really coy about things, too, or just kind of self-deprecating, where it's like, oh, you know, you just kind of email a few people, and some people say yes, and some say no. Um, <laughs> so I think I started with a few... Um, I mean, most of the local writers is people who have had books out in in the last year. So that was pretty easy to, you know, to approach them and say, would you like to promote your book? And yes, they would. And then going out and trying to find authors nationally who would kind of fit with them in a good way. So like Cassandra Montag, who's a local debut novelist, has a post-apocalyptic feminist novel coming out. So we had found Jenny Melamed from Seattle, who two years ago had a, a novel that was similar uh, in that vein and it was a best book of the year uh, by The Guardian. So, you know, she kind of has uh, a track record on that to help, and bringing like Kwame Dawes, who's uh, from Lincoln, a Guggenheim winner and an eminent poet and, and thinker, and pairing him with some local writers like Aisha Sharif, who's a poet from Kansas City, uh, a Black Muslim American woman who writes about kind of straddling different lines and like dealing with uh, you know her life and her position and in, in culture, I'm trying to get people on stage that would fit in that way. Um, So I think, you know, the process of finding them was just kind of doing that and coming up with our our dream list of writers and then figuring out like, well, who can we actually approach? And then just sending out a lot of emails where some people, you know, it it would have been a great fit, but they wanted $20,000 and that's not really in our budget. So like, who else can we get that, you know, will be great, but will uh, fit in our budget?
0: Who was the one that slipped between your fingers that? You really wanted to come, but for whatever reason, they were unable to commit to the event.
1: I think, I mean, there were a few, like Morgan Parker, the great poet uh, who lives in L.A. now. Like, she was interested, but just had a a conflict. Brandon Hobson was kind of similar uh, in that way, a novelist. Like uh, Sarah Marsh, uh, who's a nonfiction writer in Kansas, who wrote uh, Heartland. I thought that would have been a really good one, too. It just kind of didn't work out. So there were quite a few and it was interesting because I think writers and all the authors were, were pretty interested. Um, you know, they want to connect with people. And I think people are interested in Omaha, too, just because we don't have a ton of literary programming. And a lot of people don't necessarily come here that much, which is somewhat changing. But, you know, just having that getting out somewhere new is always interesting for an author.
0: You know, I feel like the humanities maybe as an academic subject, uh, and maybe looping this back to your grandparents' chagrin, the humanities gets a bit of a bad rap and is often under pressure in these different realms for a variety of, of reasons. It seems to me that LitFest is very much a celebration of the humanities and mm-hmm. the arts and its capacity to make life, the experience of life much richer. What are you hoping that the audience... Gains or gleans or experiences mm-hmm. from LitFest?
1: I think this is something we've tried to be very conscious of as we're setting up our events just to make it more of, I guess we're calling it a readers' conference and not a writers' conference. So again, talking about culture, talking about writing. Um, so we'll have panels with multiple authors on stage, but we'll also have each featured author will have their own time all alone on stage, uh, where many of them will just talk about their, write, or their life in writing and how they became an author, uh, what difference it made to them to be an author and to be able to talk about the things that they talk about, which to me has always been the most meaningful thing about going to a literary event where, you know, I was never like that interested in kind of the nuts and bolts of like publishing or kind of careerism, uh, which is necessary to know. But it's I feel like, you know, if we wanted to do something and give it to Omaha, that that wasn't it. You know, we wanted people to connect and connect with literature. So. I think, you know, that was a big part of it. And just with Nicole and I, too, in starting this where we had moved to Omaha in 2005, which was the first year of LitFest, And it was always a huge part of our, our lives. You know, every September um, we had young young kids at the time. So like we would just stand in the back with a sleeping infant on, our, on one of our shoulders and just kind of listen to it. And it meant so much to have that in our town. Um, so I think if we can do that for other people and kind of give that meaning to their life and their meaning to be in Omaha and then that would be uh, an amazing accomplishment for us
0: Off mic we were chatting beforehand about the cultural impact of something like the Omaha Lit Fest and how one feels about one's community and certainly my wife and I very much felt that the Lit Fest was an intrinsic part of how we as you expressed earlier how one codes a city that one has moved and is not moved to and is now living in. I wonder if you have longer-term aspirations for Litfest, something that maybe speaks more to making this community uh, just, just feel like a much richer place to exist in.
1: Yeah, I think we do. I mean, it's kind of hard to pin down what that means exactly, but I don't As I kind of mentioned too, like I mean, during this period where we moved here, I think we planned to stay for one year at the most and then had always kind of been looking for opportunities and just like never quite felt comfortable in Omaha or what it meant to be in Omaha. And, and you know, I think Lit Fest did help a lot with that and other things. And especially in that time, just the, the great music and art scene, uh, that was, you know, sort of at its peak with, with Saddle Creek, uh, records at that time. And it gave us something like maybe a foothold in the city, something that we could feel happy about and feel good about. And, it sounds somewhat trite in a way maybe a little bit or maybe just so intensely personal but i think it's really important you know you just hear all the time like our political leaders and like how do we keep people in nebraska like how do we keep people from leaving and to me it's stuff like this you know like it's important to have a good job and to have a good salary but you know if you don't feel proud about where you live like if you don't feel like worthwhile things are happening culturally then ultimately you'll be able to get more money somewhere else and you will leave for that money. So it's just those kind of things are important, I feel like, you know, the things that kept us in Omaha.
0: So a final question, which I'm completely stealing from uh, the New York Times book review. Dead or alive, you're having a dinner party. Uh, Well, you're not dead or (laughs) alive. You are alive (laughs) having a dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) So you're alive having a dinner party. Which three authors... Dead or alive, do you, do you invite to the dinner party?
1: i the one that jumps to mind now. would uh, be Toni Morrison, who just passed away, but I, I think she. Was, I mean, she was very uh, influential for me as an author, and just you know, for a long time was the greatest living American author. And I think you know, stakes a strong claim to just being the greatest American author that we've ever had. You know, someone who was just so brilliant in her ideas, but also. S- you know, one of the greatest, uh, lyrical writers that we've ever had. Um, I don't like Don DeLillo has always been one of my favorite writers. Um, again, someone who is always working with ideas so much, but is also such a a great writer. He doesn't seem like the most interesting person at a party, but (laughs) maybe it wouldn't be that interesting of a party in general, I guess. Um, and I guess over the last few years too, I had been reading this uh German writer who died when I was two named Uwe Jonsen, Uh just really strongly connected with his his writing so much and just his voice, where I think I'd read pretty much his entire library of work straight through once I started and was just so sad at the end that like I didn't have anything else of his to read. So I don't again, I don't know if like maybe I wouldn't like him personally or like which is always a hard thing with authors, I think, because you get their work, which is probably the best of them. So if you you know don't necessarily expect them to be like interesting people, or <laughs> but which I I don't know, I always laugh about that too when I do events and stuff because people always ask me all these other questions and I would just kind of like want to tap the book and like I put everything I had between the covers, so it's like you you got it already. <laughs> That's the best of me.
0: I think there's. Much more to the best of you. (laughs) (laughs) If they asked me, I could write a book About the way you walk and whisper I've been in conversation with author, Lipfest co-director and bookseller at a tiny roving bookstore, Theodore Wheeler. Theodore, thank you for being on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.